0: for tuning in to season five of this week in drugs the leading podcast on all things drugs including policy science culture and so much more
1: this show is produced by twid media whose members are all alumni of students for sensible drug policy an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs
0: we also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way you can check them all out on our website thisweekindrugs.org
1: Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show.
2: And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sarah and I bring you some of the biggest drug news and headlines from around the world, and then give you a heads up for some important dates and events to look out for in the next couple weeks. So after getting slightly sidetracked last week uh, with the National Cannabis Festival, we're back this week with a very exciting episode. But before we get into our first story, a shout out to this week's sponsor, you, our listeners. So, as you all know, we have a Patreon page where folks who support this show and want to help us keep it running uh, can chip in as little as a dollar every month to keep making This Week in Drugs possible. So, if you want to help us out um, and do that, you can head on over to patreon.com slash twid. So, now for our first story this week. Sarah, take it away.
1: Yay. So... Both of my stories this week are about the same place, which happens to be Vermont, and they're both actually really positive, which yay. I think is the first in a while. <laughs> so the land on of Thursday, yay, the Vermont House passed legislation that would expand access to bup- buprenorphine and methadone for incarcerated people. Currently, uh, people who are incarcerated can't get a new prescription um, if they didn't have one before they were incarcerated. And people who did have a prescription before incarceration have to go off their medication after 120 days, which is about four months. Um, And so the new legislation will remove both of those barriers and also require any physician who terminates a patient's prescription to provide that patient with both a verbal and a written explanation of that decision. That's
2: a shockingly humane thing to require.
1: (laughs) It really is. And it's so kind of, it seems pretty common sense, I guess. Um, But there were lots of reports from inmates who said that they were just being taken off their medication for no, and not really given any uh, real explanation, which
2: yeah.
1: I feel like I would like to think a lot of our listeners know what it means to be, you know, if you're forced off that medication. Um, the withdrawal process is not pleasant at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an understatement.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting and unfortunate that it's so rare, but kind of two overlapping populations that are so frequently. Um, mistreated or treated without dignity or any sense of um, like responsibility to their ability to make decisions for themselves both um, incarcerated folks and uh, people who use drugs are now like at least at the very minimum given an explanation for why they their doctor wants them to stop using medicine that maybe they, they continue to think is good for them, you know?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also interesting. So this article was published in uh, seven days, which is a pretty large publication out of Vermont. And in November, I guess they wrote about inmates who were being taken off their medication. Um, Mm -hmm. And after the article was written, uh, this article says a week after that story was published, the Department of Corrections announced it was going to expand treatment. Uh, oh, to good! The and this, so that was when we got the 120-day limit for people oh. on the prescriptions. Uh, it had previously been 30 days. Oh, wow! Which it, it seems like, so decide, arbitrary.
2: Exactly. How can you decide how long it's going to take for someone to recover? You know, from. Um, uh, something that they've been struggling with ostensibly, you know their mm-hmm. entire lives or or however long they might have been struggling with it you know, like you can't just say oh, it's going to take you one month to get better it's not like a virus infection like a viral infection, right?
1: Absolutely and it makes me, yeah it, it's it's just very strange and, it, you know, we're t- pulling this from 30 days to 120 days like what, I'd be curious to know what the logic was behind that and um, but I guess one thing, you know, when you talk about this, a lot of times uh, politicians and the general public are the most easily swayed when we're talking about money and economics. And the so the changes to this program would cost just under a million dollars, uh, around 800000 yeah. And both House and Senate budget committees um, have already committed to making to giving that um that money to that program
2: yay that's amazing good job vermont
1: right so it'll be interesting to see if this spreads i know rhode island has been doing our good things with their population of people who are incarcerated and um you know dealing with substance use disorders but we will keep an eye on it i guess
2: awesome So, moving on over into the Philippines now, which we haven't talked about in a little while, Uh, the Duterte administration has approved of a legal audit of the killings uh, committed by police in the name of the drug war. Um, So the presidential spokesperson, Harry Roque, who is also the presidential advisor on human rights, initiated this audit himself in order to have a file on each killing so, according to him, that he could confidently defend the Duterte administration's murderous campaign against illegal drugs. Um, The Philippines National Police are said to be cooperating, Um, and at first I thought this was kind of an interesting positive story, but this does seem like, um, like I'm curious how legitimate this audit is and what the underlying motives probably are for the president's spokesperson to be undertaking the audit himself. What are you, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, on the when you're skimming headlines and sort of just glance, like taking this at a glance, it does seem like it's positive. Like there's some source uh, or some sort of like correct legal process going mm-hmm. on here, right? Like there's some oversight, but when you start to look at it a little more in depth, it's almost like they are trying to cover their tracks. A exactly. Little bit.
2: Yes. So, um, it, it feels like it could be a checks and balance on what has so far been unbridled violence, right? Um, killings without due process and with complete um, immunity. Um, but with uh, under closer examination, it's kind of a case of the fox guarding the hen house. Um, so just a quick update from... Um, Harry Roque, again, who's the spokesperson and the person in charge of this audit, he said that it should be completed in two to three months and that they are already halfway done. Um, And by halfway done, he means that half of the figure of deaths that were reported by the PNP, which is the National Police, have already been documented in files. Um, Of course... Uh, as we've stated before on the show, the number of actual deaths that have occurred in the Philippines uh, is widely debated. For example, the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency um, reported something like 4,000 drug suspects having been killed uh, by the government itself and an additional uh, almost 2,500, quote unquote, drug-related killings so that uh, were are not the drug suspects themselves, which, to be honest, is, like, a very large collateral damage already. Um, But then we're getting conflicting reports from international NGOs like the Human Rights Watch or critics of Duterte from inside the Philippines who put the estimate of total deaths closer to 12,000 or even 20,000. So, like, two to three times what the uh, Philippine DEA themselves are estimating.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, yeah, we've been covering this for— coming up on two
1: years at this point. It was summer of 2016. And so I am hard. It would be very challenging for me to believe that the official numbers are, you know, below 5,000 for drug suspects killed by the.
2: Right. I think
1: the the DEA.
2: I think I remember even last year, it was already uh, upwards of 7,000 and the world was shocked by those numbers Um, And, again, since this has been going on for two years, it's kind of hard to believe that they've suddenly had a change of heart and are now worried about um, each of those killings actually being uh, legitimate and justified, um, if you could say that. Um, Just as a final thought, uh, this to me is very reminiscent of the type of internal affairs investigations we see here um, in the United States uh, after or frequently following police brutality or uh, fatal police shooting Cases um, where we know that these internal affairs investigations that are done by the police departments themselves um, almost always absolve the officer of guilt, even in cases where witnesses uh, can clearly see the officer has shot an unarmed person, um, and that there and and in those cases no excessive force is found. So, what Harry Roque is saying, which kind of shows that he's come to a conclusion before. Uh, even having completed the investigation, he says, "So in a few months, I will have a file uh, each for every killing reported by the PNP, indicating that there has been no excessive use of force."
1: Period. <laughs> so he's predicting the, f- the future. They have—they don't have all the files yet, but he knows that all of them are going to show that there's no excessive use of force. Yeah,
2: that's ex- that's exactly what he is predicting, and the kind of future that he can make true.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, taking things into his own hands. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I guess we will uh, bring us some
2: better news. Yeah, bring us some better news, Sarah.
1: (laughs) I can and I will. (laughs) Thank you, Vermont. (laughs) So this week, um, again, the same publication, Seven Days, published an article about the Vermont Department of Health and a pilot program that it's been operating for the last fifteen months, Um, and it's a partnership with Vermont Cares, which is an organization that provides needle exchanges and other harm reduction services throughout. The state um, and this specific pilot program will it will and has been um, providing people with people who use heroin with fentanyl testing kits mm-hmm. um, so health department officials say that about 130 people have received kits so far um, and you know i think we've talked about fentanyl testing strips before and sort of just the the results of drug tracking, really, from mm-hmm. uh, from the perspective of people who are using drugs, and we talk a lot about people and their willingness to change their behavior. Right? Like, if the if the test shows that the drugs are have been, you know, uh, contaminated,
2: or that there is a presence of in, fentanyl,
1: yeah. Or you know, if it's not that if it's not what you were expecting to take, right? right? If it's not the experience that you were wanting to have, um, will you alter your behavior? Right? And so the follow up interviews that. The Department of Health conducted, according to the health commissioner, 90 percent of people said that they altered their behavior when, they kid, when the like, substance that they tested contained fentanyl.
2: Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it, honestly, yeah. that's one of the biggest questions that we face um, from legislators. And I haven't had any data so far to back this up when they are asking about the effectiveness of um, fentanyl testing strips. Right. Um, because I think that a common fear is that this may lead people to start testing their drugs for the presence of fentanyl um, in order to to get um, a higher impact experience, right? Um, So I guess it it doesn't really tell us in what way they altered their behavior, but is there a breakdown? It goes into it a little bit. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, They say, in this case, altering your behavior Generally means like discarding the entire batch, mm-hmm. um, just using less if it you know if it's some um, if it's not pure fentanyl if it's mostly heroin mm-hmm. and has been you know there's a little bit of fentanyl in it they would use less, um, making sure to have naloxone on hand or I guess. Generally, if they have naloxone on hand, they're also using in the presence of someone else, so that if they do overdose or start experiencing really negative effects, there's going to be someone right there who has at least the knowledge oh. um, of what to do.
2: So these these are really harm reduction measures. These are these are um, steps that people take in order to not die.
1: Exactly, and that. One thing that really stuck out to me about this article was the understanding of harm reduction principles uh, that the Department of Health and specifically this this health commissioner, uh, Mark Levine, seemed to really have. Um, Awesome. There are a couple quotes from him in the article that jumped out at me. He talks about the goal is to keep people alive and prevent the person from becoming an unintentional overdose death prior to the time in which they may evolve to wanting treatment. If we can keep them alive, we know that with time, many people will want to seek treatment.
2: Oh my God, that is amazing! Like I really want to bring this man to the Maryland legislature so he can speak to them, you know, as a government regulator um, about the effectiveness and importance of providing something as simple as a fentanyl test strip, which which is really not that costly of a life saving measure.
1: Um, Exactly. The breakdown in the article says they, you know, cost about $1 per strip. And the total cost of this pilot program so far mm -hmm. has been under $3,000. Oh, Uh, my God. Yeah, $2,800 is the figure that this article gives.
2: So being able Um, to give this to, like, every person who uses heroin in the state of Vermont. That's...
1: And it just, it's, I mean, yeah, the co- again, you know, i talked with the last story about how cost and economics can be strong persuading figures. Um, so that's definitely a number to remember. But also uh, I think one thing that I found really interesting about this article is the way that it talks about these test strips. I um, guess maybe we're taking for granted that our listeners have an idea of what they are, but they're described here as working much like pregnancy tests. Hmm. Uh, in the way, in the sense that if fentanyl is detected in the substance, there will be one line. And if it's not detected, there are going to be two lines that show up on this little strip of paper.
2: That is super helpful. I think that a lot of people like aren't able to imagine in their heads what this could possibly look like. Um, And that's like an analogy to a really well-known product.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's simple. It's, relatable even if you haven't used one you've probably seen the commercials or in a movie or something and it's not stigmatizing like it's something that is yeah it's just such a common uh common thing in our society
2: right it just gives you it gives you um more knowledge so that you can make whatever decision you need to following that better information right exactly Awesome. So moving on to our final story, and this one is a positive one also. Um, so it's a great week for drugs, I guess, or drug policy. <laughs> um... A new study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry has found that the use of ketamine shows significant results in the rapid treatment of major depression and suicidal thoughts. The study was conducted by a Johnson & Johnson subsidiary in conjunction with researchers from the Yale School of Depression. So it's actually the first in the world to look into the use of ketamine as a treatment for depression that has been done by a drug company. Um, So they're actually going through the um regulated process to be able to prescribe ketamine for the use of uh, depression and specifically um for the rapid treatment of depression since a lot of commercial antidepressants um, take several weeks before they become effective wow yeah this is you know it's not i don't think it's the first time we've talked
1: about ketamine um as treatment for depression and and mental health issues but Mm -hmm. it's it's still, it's always encouraging to have actual data that's published in legitimate scientific journals that people can refer to. And it's not,
2: you know, uh, like hearsay people, say from ravers.
1: Exactly. I was going to say people posting memes or whatever <laughs> on, on the internet. This is, it, and I guess I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have gone off a lot about drugs and mental health and the, um, various treatments both legal and illegal Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and i think this is incredibly exciting for really the reason the the time reason that you talked about right Mm -hmm. a lot of like snris and ssris which deal with serotonin and norepinephrine um they do they take a while to actually start working Mm -hmm. whereas this and so when something when people are really in an incredibly severe de- depressive state and potentially risking um, hurting themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They need something that's going to work much quicker. And right now a lot of, we don't have, we have a lot of band-aid solutions for that. Right. But we don't have much that's going to go in and really help people. Immediately. Like, chemically,
2: like chemically in ways that yeah. maybe you can't with uh, community support or therapy or like talk therapy mm-hmm. even. But yeah, um, I mean, that's absolutely right. This trial actually looks specifically at subjects who were at imminent risk of suicide. So this isn't even folks who have, you know, like yeah. chronic or latent depression. It was really people who were already um, imminently at risk. Um, all patients were treated with a stay in hospital as as well as uh, the use of their regular antidepressants so they weren't forced to be taken off whatever medications they were already on. Um, Interesting. In addition, half were given ketamine um, in a nasal spray and then the other half were given a placebo. And the study found that those who were using the ketamine nasal spray had a much greater improvement in their depression symptoms at all points over the first four weeks of treatment. So it sounds like they did one month's worth of treatment Um, and however, at 25 days, so that's approximately the end of the first month, the effects then leveled out. So it seems like this is kind of a stopgap, for those first four weeks, um, after someone is severely, severely depressed, um, Mm -hmm. before, you know, new antidepressants may kick in. Yeah, that's, I think that's incredible, um it's really it's very encouraging, you know a
1: lot of times when someone is at at their lowest point or at that kind of um severe risk imminent risk, I guess it can be difficult to even pick up the phone or reach out to a psychiatrist or some kind of medical professional who can assist in that way, and so something like this that essentially would allow you to function mm. um at that point and function for long enough to, you know, find to change your prescription or try some other kind, make, make adjustments to the treatment that you're already receiving. Um, that's really encouraging. And a nasal spray is also really interesting. Um,
2: I know it reminds me a little bit of, I I have really bad seasonal allergies and it reminds mm -hmm. me of the nasal spray you can get for like, just for, um, like pollen and stuff these days. Mm -hmm. And I just thinking about, like, if I were in the middle of a, like, pretty bad allergic attack, which is, you know, a much less severe <laughs> example. Um, but, like, if I'm sneezing and stuffy and, like, my throat is itchy and all of the shit, um, I feel like it'd be – it's still so much easier to take just a, the nasal spray to, like, clear up my immediate symptoms than it would be to get on the phone and call my doctor and be like, hey, I have really, really bad allergies right now. Can you prescribe me something new because whatever over-the-counter medicine I'm taking isn't working. Um, so I just like having s- that simple of a tool, even um, in your pocket, you know, could could be a matter of life and death.
1: Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see um, what kind of developments we see from here.
0: This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. Join them at patreon.com twid. If you've listened to This Week in Drugs before, you know that we have a 30-second commercial each week, which helps cover the cost of producing the show. But that's not our biggest source of funding. The big majority of our money comes from listeners like you, who sign up to support our work with a small monthly contribution. At patreon.com twid, you can get some great perks for as little as $1 a month. This money helps us pay our bills, like web hosting and audio production software, so that we can keep creating great content for you to listen to each week. Again, that's patreon.com slash twid. We appreciate your support.
1: And now for our quick hit headlines. On Wednesday, our favorite governor, Paula Page of Maine, vetoed legislation that would have removed age restrictions on naloxone access.
2: Oh, boo. So I just-
1: The legislation received a total of seven no votes in both the House and Senate combined. The legislature will reconvene next week and would need a two-thirds majority in both chambers to override the veto.
2: So keep your fingers crossed. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, representing the District of Columbia, is set to introduce legislation that would allow for the use of medical marijuana in federally subsidized housing. Quote, Individuals living in federally funded public housing who are prescribed legal medical marijuana should not fear eviction for simply treating their medical conditions. End quote, Norton said in a statement.
1: And a report by the UK's National Union of Students and the Drug Policy Organization released details concerns about punitive drug policies students encounter at university. Almost 3,000 students responded to the survey, with nearly 60% reporting lifetime drug use. Wow.
2: Finally, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police has appointed a special committee to study the decriminalization of all drugs as a potential solution to the opioid crisis, including identifying existing decriminalization models. This comes just a week after the Liberal Party of Canada, the current ruling party in Canada, officially endorsed the decriminalization of all drugs and for our weekly forecast. Uh, My event
1: is in the UK in Sheffield and it takes place on Thursday, May 3rd from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Um, And it's made up of an excellent panel discussion featuring Fiona Misham, uh, a professor of criminology at Durham University and director of The Loop. We've had uh, Henry Fisher from The Loop on to talk about drug checking and what that organization is doing. The panel will also include Neil Woods, who's a former undercover police officer and the chair of LEAP UK, and Anne Marie Cockburn of Anyone's Child, whose 15 year old daughter Martha died of an MDMA overdose in 2013. So the panel will be approaching um, or exploring new approaches to reducing the harm caused by illegal drugs. And we will post a link
2: to that and how to get tickets on our website. Awesome. So for folks um, in or near Mexico City, Mexico, next week, May 4 through 6, the Museum of Drug Policy um, is going to be popping up uh, in your neighborhood. So the Museum of Drug Policy is a pop-up arts and cultural hub featuring live programming and art from around the world that highlights how drug policies impact and shape our community. The museum provides a powerful and emotional experience that illustrates the harms caused by current prohibitionist drug policies, and advocates for new approaches rooted in dignity, health, and human rights. This is a free event um, and is a touring museum. So the Museum of Drug Policy is supported by the Open Society Foundation, uh, which is Uncle Soros's foundation. (laughs) Um, And we're first launched in New York City in April 2016. So you can check out the link on our website uh, to find out exactly where this museum is going to be showing up. And if you're not in Mexico City, since this is a touring museum, it sounds like you may be able to petition for it to come to a city near you. Um, So if you're interested in that, go check out our website and we will put a link there.
1: And that is it for this week's episode, but before we wrap up, we want to say a big thank you to our sponsor, which again is listeners like you. So you can head on over to patreon.com/twit to check out those excellent rewards and see how you can uh, help keep the show running. Thanks again for listening to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris.
0: If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you.
1: If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening.
0: And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode.
1: For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.